Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. You have seen the purpose of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we praise you this morning. Lord, we acknowledge that you right now are ruling and reigning over this universe. God, we acknowledge that you are all we need. We acknowledge that you have everything that we need. And we acknowledge that you are the only one that deserves to be glorified and exalted above all. So God, we thank you for your word. God, thank you for the gift that it is to us. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit, Lord, that speaks to us and helps us understand more of your word. In fact, Lord, we can't understand your word without your Holy Spirit. And so God, I ask that your Holy Spirit would come now and speak through me. And God, also I pray that those who can hear my voice, that your Holy Spirit would work in their hearts as well. We're in desperate need of you this morning. Um, In so many ways, some we don't even realize, but certainly in in this way is our hope is that you are glorified um, and that you work in our hearts and in our lives. And we need you to do that. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, good morning. How's everybody? Y'all good? Good deal. All righty. Well, James chapter 5, verses 10 and 11 is where we'll look today. And just a quick recap. um, There will be a little bit of overlap um, this morning because I think that's helpful and important. We preach verse by verse through books of the Bible here. Um, And so this isn't just kind of some random thing where I just sort of close my eyes and open the Bible and boom, we just are preaching here or they're you know, there's not a lot of people who are specifically dealing with this topic, and so I'm going to preach that to you. Not necessarily that those are uh, bad, but that's just not how we feel called to do things here at Safe Haven. And so we do preach verse by verse. In the book of James, um, we started a few months back, and it's a, uh, James is a pastor. He, he's the half-brother of Jesus, and so it's, it's important to just kind of lay that foundation that he's writing from a pastor's heart. And, and if, if that doesn't mean anything to you or it could mean something negative to you I don't know how you relate to a pastor or what your experience is but but here's what I mean by that is is that he loves these people and he loves them enough to challenge them in ways that isn't comfortable And, and so he's writing to churches he's writing to 12 churches who have been dispersed these Christians are suffering and they're suffering because of their association with Christ They're Jewish Christians that uh, have been misplaced and displaced and and their life is not going as they thought. A lot of expectations are not being met. And so James is is really giving them the foundation for their joy. He started in chapter 1 verse 21 with a theme that we'll pick up in today. but, But this joy in suffering. And so how does that come? Because they seem to be directly opposed to one another. I mean if we're honest when we're suffering and there's pain and there's hurt. Um, it's really hard to even start to think about joy, much less experience joy in those moments. And so this letter is, is to help them, by God's grace, experience true joy in suffering. And, and the true joy that comes in suffering comes from a rock-solid foundation of who you are in Christ. And, and so he gives them test after test after test, really, of the authenticity of their faith. Is it genuine or not? He encourages them to look at their works. He encourages them to look at their speech. He encourages them to look at their thoughts. And it's all from a pastor who loves his people enough to say, hey, don't just assume everything's okay. Just because you're suffering and you're looking out at this world who seems to have it all together and seems to be prospering, 
Don't think that God has forgotten you. Don't think that God has left you. Don't think that God has abandoned you. In fact, the exact opposite is true. And so uh, Dolan Davis preached last week from verses 7 through 9. And I I mean, I jotted down a couple of takeaways um, in in case you missed it. This kind of just summed it up in my mind at least. But the first one is this. We, and I say we, I was thinking pastors because I am a pastor, but, but also all of us as believers need to listen to farmers more than CEOs. A lot of times in our culture of church planting and, you know, starting new churches and church growth and all these different tactics, we'll, uh, you know, read about these CEOs and these famous businessmen and women who have built these organizations, which there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. That's a great thing. And there is an entrepreneurial aspect to church leadership. But the scriptures consistently point us to look to the farmer. Because the farmer puts a dead seed in the ground and covers it up. That's what he does, for the most part. Farmers, you know, I'm not trying to make your job sound easy. But I I know there's a lot more to it. But essentially, you put a dead seed and you cover it up and you're completely dependent on God. That's what James was saying last week. You're dependent on the early rains. You're dependent on the late rains. If that seed's going to grow, it's going to be because of God. And so, as these believers are, are, are suffering... And, and when, there's, when there's suffering, a lot of times there's a lack of patience. And another thing that we saw last week is when there's a lack of patience, there's often a lot of grumbling. Probably get amen there, maybe. I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I don't even have to be suffering to be impatient. But the truth is, when I'm impatient, there's a lot of grumbling. There's a lot of just, just empty negative words and thoughts that come to my mind and come out of my mouth that are unnecessary and, and aren't helpful really to myself. And they're not helpful to anybody around me. And he is writing in the congregation, or, or to a congregation of believers, of people who have been called to live a life to the glory of God together. And when it's marked by impatience and grumbling, we can't do that. Because that impatience, as we saw last week in, in that grumbling, are symptoms of a greater problem. And the greater problem is our hope is in this world and not in God. And so just kind of to sum up last week, James, three different ways, and Mr. Dolan brought this out, encourages believers to be patient knowing that the coming of Jesus is near. The biblical writers lived in such a way that they truly believed that Christ could return at any moment. Now, I know that's, you know, hundreds of years ago. And so here we are on this side of, of, of the New Testament and Christ's ascension. And it, it's just, you know, years and years have gone by. Time has marched on. And it just seems like, it is, you know, I mean, we, I think we believe that it is going to happen. But I don't know if we believe that it's going to happen in our experience or in our lifetime. But the biblical writers thought completely differently. They lived and acted in such a way that Jesus could return. And so, um, please don't think... This encouragement that points us towards the coming of Christ is outdated. Please, please don't think that that's an encouragement for somebody else. That is still 100% a reality. That Jesus Christ could return at any moment of any day. And when we live that way and we think that way, our lives reflect that. And so today, just sort of a thesis statement over verses 10 and 11, which is what we'll look at. James is still encouraging this patience, but he's encouraging this patient endurance by remembering those who have gone before them. Now look at verse 10. 
He says, as an example of suffering and patience. And if you underline or highlight in your Bible, go ahead and underline example, because that's, that, that's his point. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So again, remember the setting, the context. Suffering Christians, there's impatience, there's grumbling. There, there are problems that are surfacing, not only in how they relate to one another, but how they relate to the world around them. I mean, they're being mistreated by rich people. I mean, guys, th- their life is not top-notch right now. And so as a pastor, James points them, not to their circumstance, but he points them to these suffering saints of old, specifically these prophets of the Old Testament. James is not the only one that does that. In fact, in Romans 15, verse 4, Paul said this. I love this. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So there's a similar message there. Paul encouraging believers to look to the former days, what was written in those days, as instruction, not just good literature, not just stories to read and to, you know, to do a little felt board and you know, just teach our children about, but you guys, the Old Testament is for, us in, uh, for our instruction. Not only for our instruction, but also that through those words, we gain endurance and encouragement of the Scriptures that we, we might have hope. And, and before I move to the next example, I do want to go ahead and say this in case I forget. An encouragement to look back to the Old Testament prophets. And, and the encouragement I'm going to give you to look back to some of the um, men and women that have been faithful to the Lord in our church history. That encouragement is not to look to those men and women as the hero. David was not the hero of the story. Jonah was not the hero of the story. Abraham is not the hero of the story. Paul is not the hero of the story. The disciples are not the heroes of the story. The biblical writers encourage us to look back to the prophets because the prophets were looking to God. And if you look back, what you'll see is you'll see men and women who are broken and and fail often, but they're steadfast in their hope and who God is and what He's done. And so, beloved, God will always be the hero of the story. God will be the hero of your story. Psalm 78, which is a psalm that is, is it's a wonderful psalm that's uh, mainly structured around families and and, and the importance of parents giving um, counsel to their children. But I think it speaks to this. Here's a couple of verses from Psalm 78. The psalmist says, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. And so there's a responsibility not only for us to look back to the prophets, to the saints of old, but there's also a responsibility to us to pass something down to the next generation. It's by God's design. I mean, that's in His providence that we gain hope and encouragement by seeing and hearing stories of people who have suffered similar things. Now, I don't know, like... If, if you know what I'm talking about even here, but have you ever had a really bad day or something really bad happen and you go to someone and you really just kind of want to tell them what's wrong with you and you start to tell them what's wrong with you and then they come right back with what? Well, let me tell you what's wrong with me. Let me tell you how much worse off I am than you are. That's so, somewhat annoying, you agree? A little annoying. Okay, so, so that, it, this isn't always the best thing to say right off the bat. 
like, like you might not say, if somebody comes and says, blah, 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 this is my suffering, blah, 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 and then you say, well, there's a lot more people that have it way worse off than you do. However, notice this is in chapter 5. This isn't in chapter 1. However, there's a tremendous amount of wisdom that comes in pointing one another back to those who have suffered and who have shown a steadfastness and faith in the Lord. Not to compare, not to contrast, not to make yours better or worse than theirs. Forget that whole competitive thing, but simply so that you would be encouraged in the Lord. Jesus himself assumed that we would know biblical history. Matthew chapter 5 says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad. Remember, this is the same thing James has been saying, you guys. In, in this suffering and persecution, and they utter all kinds of evil, like these churches are experiencing exactly what Jesus is prophesying here, okay? He says, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So he's pointing them to a greater hope and a greater reward, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If we're not familiar with the history of the prophets, then there's a really good chance we might be surprised when suffering comes our way. Or there's a really good chance you might believe the lie that once you enter into a relationship with Christ, that everything's okay, everything's hunky-dory. You might believe the lie that walking with Jesus means all of these physical prosperities and all these physical blessings, which some of you have that, some of you don't. We all experience some sort of prosperity and physical blessing and that's certainly from the Lord and I'm not saying that that's evil in and of itself but there has to be a hope that transcends those things there has to be a blessedness that's better because those things can be stripped away and oftentimes if you live long enough I guarantee you they will be some of us have experienced it sooner than later and so as I thought about the prophets this week, there was one specific prophet that came to mind, and it was the prophet Jeremiah. You guys ever read much about Jeremiah? All right, it's a, long, it's a long book, and it can be hard to understand at times. So get you a good commentary and read it. But, but, but here's why I wanted to bring out Jeremiah too, because this is what uh, James is wanting us to do. He's wanting us to consider these prophets of old who have shown this patience, this endurance, and this steadfastness. At the age of 17, God called Jeremiah to be a prophet to his people, a preacher to his people. Sounds noble, right? Well, it is noble. It is. But I don't know about, like, so just imagine in your 17-year-old self, some of you aren't there yet, some of you are maybe 17 this morning, imagine in your 17-year-old self that God himself commissions you to be a preacher to his people. Would you sign up for that? Most of us might, maybe. Yeah, sure. I mean, if God himself, well, here's the deal. This commissioning came in a time when the people of God were obstinate, stiff-necked, rebellious, disobedient people. And so the charge to Jeremiah was to, I'm just going to say it in our lingo, confront their sin. That's what it was. Call them out. Consistently call them out. In church, for 40 years, Jeremiah faithfully, faithfully preached what God called him to preach. His first sermon was at the temple gate, and as they walked in, and, and it had already been clear that God despised their worship gatherings at this point. And so he's standing at the temple gate proclaiming 
the message that God gave him essentially that you're in sin, stop, repent and turn to God. You're worshiping idols. You're not loving the one true God. Can you imagine that? And in 40 years, church, he did not have one convert, not one. I mean, there was no New Testament baptism yet. But if you can imagine what it would be like to to serve for 40 years, and not only do you not even see fruitful ministry, you're persecuted. People hate you. You lose your friends. You lose your family. And his ministry ended standing in ruins, literally. As it's destroyed, the city is destroyed, and the people of God are taken into exile by Babylon. Yet, in the book of Lamentations, in his lament, he's able to write these words. And I think this is the type of thing James wants these suffering Christians to remember and to think on and to look to. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Jeremiah's ministry came to an end. He was probably happy when it did. Jeremiah's life came to an end. His hope was not in his life. His hope was not in his ministry. His hope was not in anything other than the endless love of God. His mercies, that's God's mercies, never come to an end. His love never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. It's only that type foundation that, that can carry us through. I mean, there's no other reason, there's no, there's no other explanation for how Jeremiah was able to remain faithful in this call. There's no other explanation other than this, that God's love never ends and His mercies never end. They are new. Not only do they not end, but they are refreshing. They are new every single morning. And then he just praises, great God is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore... I will hope in Him. Again, I will hope in what? I will not hope in my circumstance, my health, my prosperity, my success, my spouse, my children. No, the prophet's hope was in God. The Lord is good. He's still able to say that. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him. To the soul who seeks Him. I mean, you see that on coffee mugs and t-shirts, and that's awesome. I'm not down in that. But doesn't it, doesn't it kind of leave you in awe when you remember the context of who Jeremiah was and what his life was like? And that he's still able to utter these words of faith. Jeremiah knew. He knew that if God was your portion, you had it all. It's that type of faith, it's that type of hope that James is pointing these readers too, that's that type of hope that he's pointing us to. The, the Old Testament, read the Old Testament, church. Read the Old Testament. I, I, I know it, it, it might seem obsolete. I know it's hard to understand. I get all that. Trust me, it, it is. But read the Old Testament. The Old Testament is part of God's greater story of redemption. The Old Testament is still about Jesus. The New Testament is obviously about Jesus. The whole Bible is about Jesus. And so read the Old Testament, look for Jesus, read the Old Testament, and remember the faith of the prophets that have gone before us. Because these saints suffered for our good. Look at verse 11. He says, Behold, we consider those blessed. Now, 
that, that word blessed, you hear it a lot. And, and again, I'm, I'm, not really, I'm not trying to preach a sermon to you about what blessings are, what they aren't. But I'm saying in this context, we consider those blessed. And, and I wonder how many might finish that sentence today. We consider those blessed who, what? I don't know. You just think of it. You don't have to say it out loud. But remember, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Which the implication there is that there's this blessedness that comes that our circumstances can't give us. There's a blessedness that comes that our life necessarily in this earth can't give us, at least consistently. And so there has to be a blessedness from somewhere else. There's a blessedness from above. And when this blessedness from above comes, it gives us this patient endurance and reminds us of who God is and what He's done. And that, in fact, is the foundation for patient endurance. That is the foundation for joy and suffering. It's God. It's God. And so why does James want us to consider these saints of old? Um, and and I, I do want to add this just to encourage you here. Um, some of you are probably going to roll your eyes because some of you hate books, right? How many of you hate books? See, there's some out there. My son's one of them. That's wonderful. I knew that already, but it just kind of hit home right now. Um, and so uh, you hate books. And so like anytime you're encouraged to read, you're just like, I mean, if I don't have to take any more exams or tests, I'm not reading a thing. But, but, but can I tell you that a lot of spiritual growth that I've experienced, including seminary and all my time, is reading Christian biographies. Christian biographies are fascinating. Because we see and understand what men and women and families have gone through to pass the gospel torch to us. I mean, do you have, if you don't have any clue or understanding of how we can even stand here with this book today, it's important for you to, for you to understand how we even have the Bible. And so... Here's a few reasons why I think it's important. First is this. Um, the saints suffered and endured for our good. This is important because they give us a sense of our spiritual heritage. I think it really helps us put our circumstances and our own times in perspective. Um, whenever we're suffering like these Christians are suffering in James's day, it, it helps us put things in perspective when we look back to see the price that others have paid for our good, the price that others have paid to carry on the work of God. Sometimes the price they've paid has been with their own blood. And not to take your mind to an incredibly morbid place, but you guys, I mean, if you read Fox's Book of Martyrs or you read about some of this... Um, ancient Christians in the first century, it is unbelievable what they went through. But what's more unbelievable than what they went through is the fate that they had through those trials. Entire families led into an arena, a coliseum, where people are gathered to celebrate and watch their death. Wild beasts are released on families. And the man is just trying to defend his family with his bare hands. And people watch that for fun. And all they had to do was denounce Christ. That's it. Let go of this. That's all they had to do. Set God's word down and walk away from it. They would not do it. Not only would they not do it, but you start reading some of these stories and it's, I'm like, is this even real? They do it with joy. I mean, they're looking in the face of death and, and they're not just stricken by fear. They're excited about what they're going to see on the other side and it's Christ because He is their hope. 
but it gives us a sense of our heritage. Second, they give us great examples to follow. There are men and women, not only in Scripture, but in church history, that have stood firm in the midst of controversy and persecution and held firmly to God's Word when under fire. And what James wants, not just James, but what the biblical writers want us to do and what I think this encourages us to do is to do the same thing. God's word is always going to be under fire in this age. Now there's a time coming where it will not be. But the all-out attack on God starts right here. And so wherever you see, whatever situation it is, where you see the Bible closed and set aside, God is not exalted. He's not where you see this uh, mishandled and misrepresented and misquoted and misunderstood, you see God misquoted, mishandled, misrepresented. It's nothing new. Satan has been attacking the Word of God since the Garden of Eden. So it gives us a great example to follow. Next, it gives us theological perspective and balance, and I won't spend a whole lot of time here, but, but one thing that you'll see in, in the Old Testament, what we can see in the New Testament, of course, James could not refer to the New Testament because it was being written during his time, but what we can see in the Old Testament, New Testament, and also in church history is that there are these wonderful truths, these doctrines of who God is that these men and women and families held on to. They're timeless. They're relevant in every context, in every single age. And what you'll also see is there are those timeless truths of who God is have been attacked since they've been in existence. And so it can help us to remember how important doctrine is. You guys, what you believe is important. What you believe about God will shape the way you live your life. Period. Not what you believe about you, not what you believe about. What you believe about God shapes the way you think and live more than anything else. And some of these truths have strengthened and sustained these saints in every age. So reading these, these biographies and reading of the prophets of old as James is encouraging helps us to stand firm when these truths are under fire. Lastly, in this section, they can help us deal with failure. Now I don't mean in the way of, I admit, like sometimes when I fail, I want to hear about your failure just because it makes me feel better about my failure. That's weird. And that says something of my, me, I get it. But I'm just being honest with you. Like, so, so there are times whenever we mess up and we I, I mean, think back to when you were a child or some of you are parenting now, when you call your children out, a lot of times the response is what? Well, I'm not doing what so-and-so's doing. Or it could be so much worse than what blah. I mean, you're tracking with me here. And so you don't, I don't say this about their failure and that we deal with it in the way that we justify our own. I mean, just because we see sin in these prophets' lives and we see sin in some of these old... Uh, saints' lives, that doesn't mean that it's okay for there to be sin in our lives. That's not what I mean. But what I do mean is that whenever we're overcome with guilt and shame and think that there's no way that God could ever use me because of what I've thought or what I've said or what I've done, what you see in the very people, in the very people that James is pointing these Christians back to and the very ones that I'm pointing you back to in, in, in our church history is if you study their lives and you read their biographies, you will see very, very quickly they were broken people. They were broken people. Sin, depression, unbelief, 
sexual sin, bad relationships, broken marriages, wayward children, disease, death. I mean, guys, they struggled. So it helps me. It, it, it does help me when I'm struggling in my own sin going, Lord, I, I don't think I can move on from this because of the guilt and the shame that I feel to remember that there are men and women who, have, who God has used tremendously because of who He is, not because of who they are. And here's what that does. What that does is that pushes me towards repentance and turning from sin. It doesn't push me towards being okay with my sin. So look at verse 11. He, he gives us another, a specific Old Testament example of patient endurance. He says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Some of your translations, James, is translated this way, consider Job. In fact, those very words, have you considered Job? I don't know if you know the story of Job, but in some sort of holy higher council, if you read the first part of Job, you see that that God is there on his throne, and and as it's written, Satan himself comes to God um, for permission. And so... From a theological standpoint, I don't know what you believe about the devil. I don't know if you, how much fear you have of the devil or what that looks like for you. But here's what I want you to at least begin to think on today if you don't believe it already. Satan is not free to do whatever he wants to do. He cannot do anything that God does not allow him to do. He is a puppy on a leash. He's a mean puppy. Maybe a pit bull puppy. But he cannot do anything outside of God's sovereign care and control. Rest there. So, so Satan comes in this council and, and God says, Have you considered my servant Job? Job at that point was known as one of the most righteous men that walks on the planet. And so that in, this ensues. I don't have time to give you the entire story, but this is what happens, this is what takes place. Just kind of jumping through it. I, I know I've encouraged you to read a lot this morning, so some of you may never come back. There's no test next week, okay? So, so don't worry about that, no pop quiz. But read the story of Job. Um, you're going to be challenged, but read the story of Job. And, and so God gives Satan permission to have free reign on Job, except for this, here's the one thing, he cannot take his life. And so, I know we have some children here, so I want to be careful. But, all heck breaks loose. Not literal, because that's going to be worse off than what Job even experienced. But as much as a human being can experience suffering, it happened in Job's life. Not only did he lose his family, he lost his home, he lost friends, he lost, I mean, he, his health, he got bulls. I mean, every single part of who Job was, was under full-blown attack. I mean, some of you probably know that. But here, as, as I've thought about Job, because what I tried to do is what James wants us to do. Consider Job. Remember Job. Think about Job. And if, you, if you're familiar, maybe with a little bit more of the story of Job, you know that Job did not walk through this perfectly. There were multiple times that Job questioned God. I mean, Job said things like, the wicked prosper. 
Here I am, a righteous man, and, and the, I see the wicked around me prosper. Job's wife said, please, please, baby, curse God. Maybe he will relent. And this is when we see what James wants us to see in Job's life. In Job's life, it wasn't perfection. It wasn't always great. He didn't always think the right way or do the right things. But Job had a steadfast faith in who God is. He said things like this. This response in chapter 1, verse 21. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, the Lord gave, that's good. And he acknowledges the Lord has taken away. And so we sing, I think there's a praise song, you know, he gives and takes away. And and that, that is something that we say, but it is not said and believed and truly experienced without real pain. Because it acknowledges that God does give, but what does it also acknowledge? He takes. But Job says, blessed be his name. The author adds in verse 22 of chapter 1, through all this Job did not sin nor did he blame God. Satan returned to God. A couple chapters into Job, gained permission to go farther as long as he spared Job's life. This is when he gets these painful bowls from head to toe. This is when his wife has had enough. She advised him to curse God. Job responds, shall we accept good from God and not adversity. But keep in mind, Job's response was not about his strength. Job's foundation and steadfastness was not about his ability. After Job questions God and demands to speak to him. This is how God responds. And just I'm going to have to skim through Job chapter 38. But what I want you to listen for is what brought Job hope no matter what. And how I said earlier, your thoughts about God will dictate everything. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? He says, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Listen to this, church. God speaking to Job. And I want you to answer this in your mind. Feel free to answer it out loud. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? The earth, that is. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, Job, where were you? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out of the womb? When I made the clouds its garment in thick darkness and swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Job, have you commanded the morning since your days began? And caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? Job, have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? And he says, go ahead, declare if you know this. 
Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the hail which I reserve for the time of trouble for the day of battle and war? Has the rain a father or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth and who has given birth to the frost of heaven? Job, can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Job, can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Hey, hey Job, who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Job, do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Job, do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with mane? Chapter 40. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. God's response to Job is reminding him And I skipped through a ton, way more ways than I read of who he is and what he's done. And the encouragement for Job is, hey, Job, I have you. I haven't forgotten you. I haven't overlooked you. I'm here. I love you. Here's who I am. Now, Job, here's who you are. Submit. I'll give you three thoughts in considering Job. First one is this. Now, I I know how this is going to sound. And that's on purpose. God's spiritual blessing is on those who endure, not those who bail out. Now, that, that's a true statement. I mean, some of you may have stories. I've had, I, have, I have friends and people that I could give you. I mean, a, a common question I get as a pastor is, what about so-and-so? They walked with the Lord so faithfully, and then this happened, and then they turned from the Lord, and they hate God. Does that mean that they lost their salvation? What does that mean? And, and there's, a, there's a compassionate way to walk through that, but let me just give you the overarching answer to that is, their hope was not in God. Their hope was in what God could give them, but it was not in God. But there are those prophets of old that James is pointing us to, many that I've mentioned to you already this morning, that faithfully endure. They don't bail out. They're not, let me just go to the second one. Endurance does not require perfection, but it does require submission. Church, this is not about you being perfect through trials. This is not about you thinking the right thing, doing the right thing, crying about the right things, laughing about it. Forget all that. Don't give yourself a list of things you have to do the right way in order to suffer well. 
It's not about perfection. There's nothing in the gospel in, as it relates to you that has to do with perfection. God does not expect perfection from you. Jesus is your perfection. Jesus suffered perfectly, so you don't have to. He did not fail in one aspect of his suffering because we will and have and do. But it does require submission. And so for those stories that I just mentioned, there are people who come back to the Lord and and by his grace, he doesn't leave them. He has them and he captures them. And what you'll see in their life is they'll eventually come back to not going, well, I understand everything and I'm good with all that God has done. No, they may not ever say that, but they will submit to God and his authority and his love and his care and say things like this, acknowledging that the love that he's shown through Jesus is enough. They may lament like Jeremiah, but know that the Lord is my portion and I have all I need. Third, the submission required for endurance is found in a firm belief in God's sovereignty in all things. I don't need to give you a definition of God's sovereignty this morning because I think Job 38 did that. Snow, hail, mountain goats, telling the waves when to stop, lightning asking where do we go. Did you notice in chapter 5 of James, verse 11, thinking about this, this endurance is found in a firm belief that God is sovereign and in control. He says, behold, We consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. Now watch this. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord. That in the suffering that Job experienced, there was not one aspect of it, and the same is true for you, that was random. It wasn't Satan having free reign and God having to go, oh my goodness, we got to go down there and do something about this. Let me react. It's not the God of the Bible. Having a firm belief in God's sovereignty in all things is knowing that God has purposed everything for His glory in our lives. And here's what it's for. Look at the last part of verse 11. Here's here's what suffering will do. It will illuminate these two things. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. How the Lord is compassionate and how the Lord is merciful. I thought it would be fitting to end you with a, end with a quote for you guys from one of the saints of old. John Bunyan said this. Therefore those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. God has appointed all who shall suffer. Suffering comes not by chance or by the will of man, but by the will and appointment, I'm sorry, by the will and appointment of God. I believe what James is teaching us here, what the Bible teaches us, is that if we ignore or deny the truth that God is sovereignly compassionate 
and merciful and in control, we destroy the foundation of endurance through trials. There will be times in our lives that the solid foundation of the person and the work of God that's revealed in the word of God through the person of Jesus is all we have to hold on to. And it's enough. And it will never fail and it will never waver and he will never change. Everything around us will, but he won't. So if the band could come back. You know, for us, it is a little different. Uh, well, sort of. But, but for us, as we look back, we have the New Testament. And these Christians, you know, obviously they, you know, they knew of Jesus. They trusted in Jesus in the same way that you and I have trusted in Jesus. But when we remember the saints of old, we remember the prophets, we remember Abraham, we remember Moses, we remember Jonah, we remember David, we remember Jeremiah. We remember Hosea. We remember all of these prophets. What, what, what these prophet, who these prophets point us to are Jesus himself. Jesus was a greater Moses. Jesus was a greater Jonah. Jesus was a greater Joseph. Jesus was a greater, is a greater king than even David. And so as we look back, and if, I don't know if you're suffering today, and I don't ever want to assume that. Some of you guys are on a mountaintop and things are great. And so praise God for that. Rejoice in the Lord for that. Thank Him for that. Don't let this be a season of drought in your worship just because things are going well. Don't let it be this, this pendulum that has to go all the way to this suffering extreme before you acknowledge God. Acknowledge God on the mountain. Praise Him. And so I'm not assuming everybody in here is suffering, but if some of you are, if some of you are suffering this morning, when you look back to the saints of old, do that. But you can't look past Jesus. Because what the cross of Christ says, it's the epitome of this mercy and this compassion and this sovereignty that we've been talking about this morning. At the cross of Christ is where the mercy of God and the justice of God meet. And it's in Jesus and Jesus alone that we can have any sort of joy in suffering. It's because of Jesus and Jesus alone. Those coffee cups are flying like crazy this morning. But God's sovereign. I mean, God's sovereign, maybe even over coffee cups. Definitely over coffee cups. But at the cross of Christ, the mercy of God and the justice of God, they meet. And it's in Jesus himself is the only person in place that we can ever have joy. He's the only way that you can ever have any sort of steady, firm foundation in your suffering. You're not going to find it from Dr. Phil. I'm sorry. Oprah can't give it to you. Modern psychology can't bring it. Only Christ can bring the peace that we need to sustain us through suffering. So look to Jesus. You're suffering this morning. Look to the one who suffered and endured perfectly for you. Trust him. Place your faith in him. And you're going to walk out that door and there's still going to be suffering. But you will have a hope that transcends anything this world can bring you in Christ and Christ alone. I'll be available to pray with you if you'd like. Just respond to the Lord. Whatever that looks like for you in the season of life that you're in, just respond to the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. God, I thank you for what we're about to see. 
this baptismal water. And so God, I pray that your Holy Spirit not only moves through baptism, but God, I pray your Holy Spirit moves through the, the teaching and preaching of your word. I pray for the suffering one in here. God, if there's an unbeliever in this room that's suffering that doesn't know where to turn or know where to look, God, I pray that by your grace you would open their eyes. You would open their eyes to see you and to trust you and have faith in you. God, would you grant salvation today? The suffering Christian in this room, God, I pray. I pray that they just hold all the more tightly to the promises to the hope that's in Jesus and the tighter we squeeze on your promises Lord the more we realize you have a tight eternal grip on us so glorify yourself it's in Christ's name Amen